Come now, you say. Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is a sin. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the, the last days. Behold, The wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers. Until the coming of the Lord, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with the oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. And pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain. And the earth bore its fruit. My brothers... If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner for his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. So on Friday, 
I was uh, wrapping up my sermon in one of my favorite spots uh, at the local Starbucks in Frankfurt. Friday was a very strange day because it was a very bustling morning. Starbucks is normally a very fast-moving place. People come in, they grab their coffees, they run out, they pre-order, they grab their coffees and they run out. You go through the drive-thru, grab your coffees and you move on out. But this mor- that morning, Friday morning, it was a jam-packed morning. There were moms who were talking about their busy schedules, what they have coming up this weekend, and the chatter was going crazy. There was, there was a group of senior citizens that were all, they were all widows or widowers, and there were about uh, 15 of them all sitting around three tables, gathering around, ch- talking louder than ever, probably because their hearing aids were being affected because of the noise going on in there. It was absolutely crazy, and they, they apologized to me afterwards because they saw that I was busy doing some serious work. The whole place was busy. There were, there were businessmen who were, had laid out their, their blueprints, and they were talking about how something was going to be built and there was a group of regular older guys who were sitting in there talking about politics and everything that is wrong in the world. But eventually, two women sat in a table next to me. One woman uh, leaned over and she, she said this, Will it bother you if me and my friend talk? And I'm going, Welcome to Starbucks. I told her no, and of course, you know, it's a public coffee place, and, you know, I can't expect people to not talk in this place. And then she said this, will it bother you if we cry? I'm going, oh. As as a pastor, as a good Christian, as a human, I said, of course not. It makes sense. For me to tell them that they, they could talk, but they couldn't cry. So they sat at the table, these two close friends and me. They were literally just this far apart from me. And, and in the safety of speaking in front of a total stranger who they didn't know, and honestly, quite honestly, they could see again, but they didn't know, they began to open up their lives with complete honesty. And what ensued was a a sacred moment. I won't repeat the details that I overheard because I ultimately at one point even decided it's time to move on. I, what is being shared is very private. But I'll summarize it with this. It was a reflection of a simple thing. Life is hard. It's difficult. Life is actually, it can be very brutal. It reminds me of the advice I once heard from pastors, four pastors at a conference. Someone said, be careful what you say when you preach, because the world just rolled over and flattened half the people in your congregation every Sunday. So we're in our last sermon in the book of James, and today we're looking at a really a larger piece that if I... If I wanted, I could have probably broke it into about uh, six or seven different sermons. Um, and this passage, if you were listening to as I was reading it, you're going, there's a lot of topics here. There's a lot of stuff that can be 
talked about. And one preacher, uh, David Platt, kidded in his commentary. He said this, This sermon is going to be all over the place, but it is totally James's fault. This whole series is James's fault, for that matter. It's going to seem like this passage is all over the place, and in some ways... It is, but one of the most, the overarching theme that you can get here is that life is uncertain, and we need the wisdom to know how to live in this uncertain world. We've seen school shootings. You've experienced the pain in relationships. You've financially been in all different kinds of places. You, you raised children hoping that this would be the turnout. And look at what happened. Life is uncertain. So as we finish this series in James, uh, let's look at what James has to say with two simple points. Number one, life is uncertain. But two, given that life is uncertain, how do we live? in an uncertain world. Now, the first thing that James tells us that life is a, it's a roller coaster. It's a mess. It's, it's got its ups and its downs. It's unpredictable. You're going to turn a corner and go, I did not, did not see that coming. I wasn't prepared for that. So this is important because of a lie that we're tempted to believe. That if we are smart enough, if we are disciplined enough, if we plan enough, if we are just do good enough things in life, our lives will be peachy keen. Right? If we just do enough, plan enough, forecast enough, do enough activities, it is all going to come out. How's that working for you? It might feel really good to to feel like you're in control of just planning and planning and planning because it gives you a sense of control in that moment. But does it always turn out like this wonderful walk along the beach? We live under the illusion that we are in control of our lives and that the right strategy, the right technique, send just enough discipline, then we will be able to live a good and satisfying life today. In other words, we think that we are ultimately in control of our lives. The reality? James says, you are not in control of your life. Just look at what James says in, in uh, verses 13 and 14. Come now, you say, Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a time and then vanishes. James is not saying that it is wrong to make plans. Hear me say that. The Bible is clear that planning is a very good thing. And Proverbs 21.5 says that the plans of the diligence lead surely to abundance. But everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. Planning is a good thing. And we should involve ourselves in planning. But what is the problem? in, In our planning, we often forget that life is uncertain. We don't know what tomorrow may bring. You may make all your best laid plans, and then tomorrow happens. 
We, we act like we can plan our lives when we don't even have control over the next five minutes. Our lives are unpredictable. Our lives are short. And I don't think that I realized that when I was in high school. I thought I was like a superman. There was nothing that was going to stop me or slow me down whatsoever. The older that I get, the more that I realize that my life is short. I am at about the halfway mark. The Stoic philosopher Seneca said this, We are always complaining that our days are few and acting, though, that there would be no end of them. Let me say that again. Uninspired man, but with a lot of wisdom. We are always complaining that our days are few. And you might even say that your hours are few and your minutes are few. We're always complaining. There's not enough time in a day. Where's the time going? But yet we're acting as though there would be no end of them. I thought this as recently as I came across a grid showing how long the average person lives in months and weeks. It's not a long time. James compares us to a mist for a time that just appears and then burns up with the daylight heat. Then this is very common in the Palestinian kind of uh, climate. Water droplets in the air would form into condensation and then automatically they would just kind of disappear. Our lives are like that. The room where you sleep in your home will someday be somebody else's. And nobody will even remember that you lived there. Your job, if it even exists, will someday belong to somebody else. Your great-grandkids, if you have them, will probably not remember your name. How's that for good news? We will all be forgotten. Billy Graham will be forgotten one day. It's depressing to think about this, but we have to face this or we are going to continue living in denial. And it's not only this that we have to face. James goes on to describe some of what we, we are going to face in this, this world where we are going to be short-term residents. In chapter 5, he just, he just rails against these rich oppressors who are taking advantage of the poor, who exploit their day workers only for their gains. Man, we, we look in our world and we can see this, right? All around, they exploit The workers, the day-to-day workers, and their pockets are getting filled. And they're getting richer and richer. And James is probably talking to Roman and Jewish non-believing employers. And some of the people that would read this letter would be be belonging to the, the day laborers who are being exploited by the rich. So not only is life uncertain and not only is it short but there were people who were dealing with gross injustice in their world and we live in a world where you look across we are some of the wealthiest people in the entire world you 
are extremely wealthy. The distribution of wealth is off. I'm not calling for us to distribute wealth and everybody has the same amount. But the injustices, it's off balance. We live in a world of injustice and inequity. And then there's just this general level of suffering that's going on. In verses 7 through, through 20, he speaks to those who are in the church who are suffering, either in a general set, sickness or with sickness that is on a spiritual level. And he's speaking to them. Catherine Hepburn said this, Life is hard. Can you hear her say it? Life is hard. After all, it kills you. It is hard. And James reminds us that it's uncertain, it's short, and it is full of all kinds of troubles. There's no denial in the book of James so that we, we kind of get to the point where we, we, we really want to escape it all. And we kind of buy into this idea, if you just follow Jesus, if you just follow Jesus, everything is going to be hunky-dory. Health, wealth, you're going to have prosperity, your, your family life is going to be smooth, your work life is going to be food. If you just pray these prayers, you do these things, life is going to be easy. And James goes, I'm calling your bluff. That is not true. So what do we do? What do we do then? How do we live in this uncertain, short, and difficult life? As I look at this passage with all of its twists and its turns, I see that James offers at least three specific things on how to live in this uncertain world. And here's the first thing. Remember that God is sovereign. We've already seen that James says that life is uncertain and it's short and we can, we can make all kinds of different plans, but we really have no idea of what is going to happen in the next five minutes. There was an accident right out here. Did anybody notice it? You did. That's good. You were paying attention here. Just a little bit ago, there was a, a fender bender right out here. That guy who was in the front side did not ever plan that somebody's going to be rear-ending me right here. The guy who was following behind, probably way too closely, not paying attention, never planned on rear-ending this other guy. Thankfully, they just drove away peacefully and did not probably report anything. We have no idea what's going to happen when we leave these doors. So how do we live? Should we just kind of go with the flow? Should we just refuse to make plans, kind of have this fatalistic, well, whatever's going to happen to me is going to happen to me kind of mentality? No, James says. Here's what we ought to do. And in James 4, verse 15, he says this. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. James is not against planning. But James helps us to see something about the way that we live our lives. He exposes our heart, how we are kind of presumptuous. Every one of us. He exposes our presumptuousness. In Alec Matir, in his uh, commentary, he says this, when James exposes his, 
exposes the blemish of presumptuousness. He exposes something which is the unrecognized claim of our hearts. We speak to ourselves as if life were our right, as if the choice were as if choice were the only deciding factor, as if we had in ourselves all that was needed to make the success of things, as if getting on, making money, doing well were life's sole objective. James is not trying to banish planning from our lives, but only that sort of self-sufficient, self-important kind of planning that keeps God on Sunday. The kind of planning that keeps God at bay until, okay, it is that religious day of the seven days of the week. I'm inviting God in for this moment. Everything else I'm going to plan away. James says that our planning should realize that God may have other plans for your life. I know that you think you're pretty wise. I think I am. I'm pretty sharp, I think. But I've got to come to the point and realize that God may have other plans for my life. He may be calling me to go somewhere else, to interact with someone else. He may be calling me to invest our money and give more, give less, do all these kinds of things. God may have other plans for us. And James isn't saying that we should just sit on a tack of this pious-sounding phrase, tack it on and do whatever we want. Well, whatever, whatever God says. Whatever He wills. He's asking us to acknowledge our own limitations, our ignorance, our frailty, our dependence. And that God has ultimate say in what is going on in our life. We can trust God because He is good and He is sovereign over all. This phrase, Kent, R. Kent Hughes says, about if God wills, is to be the constant refrain of our heart as we conduct the affairs of our lives. If God wills, must be written over students' plans. The choice of a life partner, future education, everyday activities. Older people need to say from their heart, if God wills, I will spend my time. If God wills, my children will become. If God wills, I will take up this ministry. If God wills, I will wake up tomorrow. All of us should have this heart attitude. It's only when we comprehend the sovereignty and the goodness of God that we will be able to handle the things that we cannot control. Because behind the seeming randomness of life is a God who is in control even when we are not in control. Even when life seems completely going off the tracks. Wendell Berry in his, his novel Jabbercrow writes this, I cannot look back from where I am now and feel that I, have made been, that I have been very much in charge of my life. I have made plans enough, but I see now that I've never lived by the plan. Nearly everything that has happened to me has happened by surprise. All the important things have happened by surprise. 
And whatever has been happening usually has happened before I have had time to expect it. And so when I have thought I was in my story or I was in charge of it, I really have been only on the edge of it, carried along. Is this because we are in an eternal story that is happening only partly in time? See, we're a part of an eternal, ongoing story that we cannot control. Never think that we can control things. Okay. Just saw a police car pulling in. I can't control that either. So let's understand that God is in this work of weaving all these things together into His eternal story. And let's, as we are trusting God who is weaving these things into His eternal story, let's, let's trust Him and trust His goodness. Even in the everyday details of our lives. Because He is good. So that's the first way that we can handle uncertain times. Trust God because He is in control. Here's the second thing. Trust in His justice. James 5, 7-9 says this, Be patient therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. What is that referring to? That last day. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your heart, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So we've already established that there's all kinds of injustice in this world. Terrible things are going to happen to you or to others or to whole people groups. How can we put up with any kind of oppression and inequity in our lives? It's, it's a question that we have got to wrestle with today. We live in a world where there's economic injustice, there's racial injustice, and James just got done talking about the way that day laborers are being exposed by the rich. It's wrong, and James speaks out about it loudly, very clearly. This is wrong. And on a very personal level, some of you know what it's like to experience some level of injustice. You know what it's like to be wrongly terminated. You know what it's like to have your name wrongly dragged through the mud. You, you've had unjust accusations leveled against you. You know what it's like to be maligned or mistreated. So what does James say that we should do? He's already spoke out about injustice. And certainly, we should speak out about injustice. The, the church should be the place of saying, no, this is wrong. We should speak out. But even more, James says, we are still going to experience injustice and oppression. And so James gives us one more powerful resource that has helped the most oppressed people groups in the world to not only survive, but to live and thrive in hope. And what is that resource? The justice of God. God 
will bring justice for all the oppressed. For every martyr who has had his or her head cut off. God will bring justice. For every person that has been lynched or wronged, God has the last word. He will stand against the oppressor. He will right all the wrongs. Every case of injustice will eventually be brought into His courtroom. Imagine that. Holy cow. Think about that. You are the oppressor and you will stand one day before that great throne of God in His courtroom and He will say, guilty. And He will right all wrongs. One of my Facebook pastor connections, Chris Braun, who is a pastor of Red Brick Church in Stillman, Illinois, Stillman Valley, Illinois, has a line that stuck with me. He said this, a soft view of hell makes hard people. And here's what he means. A lot of people struggle with the difficulty, the idea of God's wrath and God's justice. Believing in the reality of hell is really a very hard thing because there are real people and some real people that we really know. But Braun says, if the worst thing anyone has ever done to you is spray Roundup on your grass, hmm, that's pretty rough. But what if someone has really wronged you? What if you have have had to deal with a gross injustice in your life? What do you do when someone wrongs you and hurts you at the deepest level and gets away with it? The Bible provides a clear answer. Count on the justice of God. Ron goes on to say that the central strategy for avoiding bitterness is to rest in the truth that God will see that justice is done. You're not in control of another person's emotions and activities and their, their reaction, and you cannot control that. But somehow we think that we are, right? And ultimately we keep wanting control and we keep wanting to manage and we keep wanting to do this. Ultimately what happens to our heart? Bitterness seeps in. It takes up residence. We become angry. And ultimately, what is is God saying? Listen, cut it out. You can rest in the fact that God is going to bring about justice. Be done with it. In Romans 12 and Psalm 73, 2 Thessalonians 1, and in this passage, the Bible tells us that we can deal with injustice by just resting in the truth that ultimately justice will be done. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a pastor who lived and suffered under the Nazi regime and was ultimately killed by them, said this when he was, uh, when he was asked, how is it possible to feel love for such people Think about it. The people who, the Nazis, the creeping ovens, the shooting people, massacring people, 
How is it possible to love these people? And he replied this, it is only when God's wrath and vengeance are hanging as grim realities over the head of one's enemies that something of what it, that is something of what it means to love and forgive them can touch our hearts. So look to the justice of God, James says. God will right all wrongs. You can live in an uncertain world and know that one day, one day, God will certainly set everything that is wrong right. The judge is standing at the door. Justice will be done soon. So finally, the last thing. How do we live in an uncertain world? Pray for and support each other. The rest of James 5, 13 through 20 focuses on how we can get through this uncertain world. Suffering? How do we deal with suffering? We pray. If you're cheerful, sing praise. If you're sick, call on the elders. They're going to pray over you. Just so you know, some of you are, I know some of you are going to say, well, what does that mean? Does that mean every time you get the flu or you bump your, your leg or everything that you should call the elders? No. You, you may. You may want to. But that's, this is talking about uh, two things. It could either be the type of a, uh, a spiritual sickness where the elders are coming in and praying over you, but it can also mean a terminal kind of illness. Notice that the person who is they are calling for the elders to come to where? Their house. Come to my house. Why? Why are they calling the elders to come to their house? Because they cannot leave. They're an invalid. There's no moving from this spot. And what, how are the elders ministering to them? They are praying over them. Inferring that quite possibly they are, they are bedridden. And so, but... What is this oil thing? Is there something like a holy oil? You know, we've seen in the Roman Catholic Church, you know, you have some holy oil blessed and you kind of put it on them and something is special happens because of applying the oil? No. I believe that the oil was a way of symbolizing the elders were bringing a person before God for healing. But there's another way. Have you sinned? Confess your sins. Not all sickness is a result of sin, but God can use, hear this, God can use physical sickness and illnesses to discipline us. Is someone among you wandering from the truth? What should you do? Wave? No. James says no. If anyone is wandering from the truth, you you are to bring them back. So that that talks about how the church, in an uncertain world, we are going out and we are bringing people back. We have the responsibility to look out for each other, to care for one another, to pray over one another. James, what James is talking about here cannot be done in totality on a Sunday morning. It means that we have got to be 
covenantally deeply connected in each other's lives, sharing our joys, sharing our sufferings, walking with each other, praying for each other through the good times and through the bad times. What James is saying here should be blindingly obvious to you. We are not going to get through this life very well if we are trying to do it on our own. We need the church. I need the church. You need the church. We need a certain kind of church in which we pray for and we support one another. Friends, life is uncertain. And how are we going to survive it? By remembering, man, God is sovereign and we've got to tell one another. Friend, God is sovereign. He's in control. I don't know what he's up to. What do you mean you don't know? I've done this and this and this. It should be coming out like this. And you're going, friend, I, I don't know what God's up to you, up to in your life. But you know what? He is in control. On top of that, he is good. Do you trust that? No matter what is going on in your life, he's in control and he is good. Friend, do you also, we, we need to speak into each other's lives and say, hey, let go of this. This is, this is killing you from the inside out. You're bitter. You're angry. You are ticked off. And I don't even want to be around you anymore. Because it's catchy. Friend, trust in God's justice. He will, you cannot fix everything. You are not God. But trust in the one who will make all things right. And friends, I am here to pray for you, to support you. But it's not a one-way street. You should be praying for me, supporting me. You should be supporting and praying for one another. That is the kind of church that God wants to bless. So what's James saying here? He's saying that, listen, only the gospel... Only the gospel can give us hope in an uncertain, messed up world. Jesus ultimately is the one who rescues us from a life of randomness and uncertainty to a world in which we know for sure that God is for us and God is at work, that God will bring everything to justice and that He has given us all the resources, all the resources like His family to help us through this wild and crazy life. He has given you everything that you need. So yes, life is uncertain. And the world is watching. They want to see, how, how's Paul Broom going to react to this situation? I'm going to react knowing that God is in control of my life. I'm going to react knowing and trusting that He is going to bring justice. They are going to find me independent, in dependent relationships with you. They are going to see me controlling my tongue and not letting it set a whole forest, forest ablaze. 
They're going to watch me in suffering and say, who is this guy? What is going on? So friends, in a watching world, may we trust even more in our loving Savior so that we can be a light in a dark place. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, I know this in a room, just even with this size, with this, this amount of people, Lord, that there are people who have questions about your sovereignty and your goodness. And there are people who, are, who have been damaged by the world, by relationships, even by the closest ones to them. There are those who, us, us, who just love to be on the fringe and just be outside and not really need to trust anyone but ourselves. God, would you help us to depend on you and you alone. May we trust in your good hand. May we know that you will bring all wrongs to a correct right. And Lord, may this become a safe place, a vulnerable place of growing up, depending and leaning on one another. Where we can even confess our sins to one another, knowing that you will heal us we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the key ideas at the beginning of uh, the series in James was that James said not to be double-minded. Do not be double-minded. Plant yourself firmly in faith in God's camp. His ways. As we come to the Lord's Supper... My reminder to you is not to be double-minded. If there is something within you that is willfully choosing to be disobedient, willfully, you know, you've heard the teachings, you know what the Bible says about things, and you are willfully disobedient, choosing from a hard heart not to obey. Friends, I want to discourage you from coming to the Lord's Supper. On the flip side, praise God for grace. Where in His mercy, He came for broken people like you and me. Knowing that when we confess our sins, not only to Him, but to one another, when we confess our sins, that He will be faithful and just. And for